BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This show is brought to you by the Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yes. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with my friend Patrick Quinn at the Center for Metal Arts, back again. Let's talk about a little bit of business. Number one is I want to thank Broadbeck Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder. It's a grinder made by knife makers for knife makers, metal workers, and you're removing material. This is the stuff for you. And what I want to tell you is if you go to broadbeckironworks.com, put in the promo code KNIFETALK200, you're going to get a $200 discount off any of their grinder packages. If you put in KNIFETALK100, you're going to get a $100 discount off their sharpening system, surface belt grinders, and leather sewing machines. I just want to thank them for all their uh, help. I love Broadbeck. The guys are terrific, and uh, I want to thank you for your for all your support of this podcast and all of our other podcasts. Next is Evenheat. Evenheat are the sponsors of this podcast and other podcasts like Knife Talk, and they're the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. To go find your next heat treat oven, go to evenheat-kiln.com. I just used the even heats to forge down. We did some forge friction folder classes, and we used our even heats, and they, they were awesome. So I want to thank even heat kilns, and um, definitely if you want looking to get a deal on one, if you follow Knife Talk, there's a sponsor that has them in stock, and they ship with $75 off and free shipping in the United States. So thank you very much, even heat. Next is Nordic Edge. Nordic Edge are tool makers, uh, blacksmiths, bladesmiths in Australia. And they have a lot of stuff in stock. They teach classes, but they also have things available. Like you need hammers, you need tongs, you need steel, you need abrasives. Anything you need to get involved with blacksmithing or bladesmithing or knife making, they have it. And if you go to nordicedge.com.au, you can see all the great things they have, all the knife making supplies, abrasives, grinders, tooling, all that stuff. 
definitely go check that out and I would highly suggest checking out the big Merck file guide. Merck Kansu designed this uh, file guide with them and they have it for sale at knifekits.com in Atlanta for sure. So without question, go check out nordicedge.com.au, see what all the fuss is about. If you're in Australia, if you're a beginner, if you're a veteran, this is the place for you. And uh, I couldn't thank another sponsor, I couldn't thank enough, is Maritime Knife Supply. Lawrence Lake at Maritime Knife Supply has been amazing. Go to MaritimeKnifeSupply.com or MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca. All your knife making needs, belts, abrasives, steels, kilns, forges, press, heat treating ovens, ovens, anvils, everything you need to get started to resupply. They're in Canada, but they ship to the United States with these, and you can take advantage of that exchange rate. Go get yourself some of that steel that Lawrence Lake has. He is a knife maker and he's very involved in the bladesmithing community. He's very involved with the New England School of Metalwork and he knows what you need. And if you're in Australia and you say, hey, look, the guys in the United States get better stuff than us, go tell him what you need and he'll get you squared away. So go get yourself some of that maritime knife supply and get some of that abrasive belts because they have 10 packs and they're on sale and you get 10% off with your brace of belts on your 10 pack. So go check out one Maritime Knife Supply, see what all the fuss is about. They got all the TR Maker equipment and the Dr. Laren Thomas, why am I whispering? Dr. Laren Thomas's must-have book on knife engineering. Many thanks to Maritime Knife Supply. Next is Trojan Horse Forge, makers of this THF stable rail knife finishing vise. Built in the, vices built in the heart of Texas. These, awesome, these vices are awesome, I love them. They have plates that you can bolt to to hand sand your knives. And then when you're done with that, you turn it around, put it in the back. Next thing you know, you're finishing off your handles. It's a terrific, it's a terrific knife finishing vise. And every one of my knives goes onto that vise twice. So if you go to trojanhorseforge.com, put in the promo code full blast, you're gonna get 10% off. No, you're not gonna get 10% off anything. You get free shipping in the United States. So go check out what's going on at trojanhorseforge.com. They have payment plans available. Do yourself a favor. Get yourself one of them vices and do it on the payment plan so nobody, when they see the credit cards, they're not going to know what you did. Just trust me. You'll be fine. They'll never know. Trojanhorseforge.com. Thank you very much. Promo code full blast for free shipping United States. All right. Next is Bakerforge, Bakerforge.com. That's Bakerforge and Tool. Koi Baker and the guys have been making really awesome exotic steels for a long time. It's it's great stuff. And if, especially if you're a stock removal guy and you want to have a little razzle-dazzle for your customers, go get yourself some of them uh, copper maskets or whatever it is. It's got a 80 CRV 2 core or uh, 52 100. Maybe you'll have a little copper shim, a little bit of Damascus on the outside as a jacket. Stuff is awesome to use, very easy to use. And uh, you're going to really be surprised at how beautiful it turns out. And you get to try something new. They have copper mine. They have bronze mine. They have sand mine. They have pattern welded Damascus. And if you go to bakerforge.com, put in the promo code full blast. I think it's full blast 10. Full blast or full blast 10. Try it. One or the other. And you're going to get 10% off your order. And hey, listen, maybe get yourself a bottle of Gator Piss. If you're a Gator Piss... Gator Piss is their etchant, the worst name, I mean the best name in, the best name in knife making, Gator Piss. 
They call it gator piss. And here's what I want to tell you. Don't worry about the name. You don't have to tell your customers either. Give them the copper mascus, charge them whatever you want. Just don't tell them you use the gator piss. It works great. It's already pre-made. It's already pre-made. What's the matter, Pat? You never heard of gator piss? It's already pre-mixed etchant. It's awesome. And uh, a lot of people have been using it. If you put in the co promo code full blast, you get 10% off your order. So give yourself a jug of bait gator piss. Stop playing. What's the matter? What's the matter? You never heard of that? All right, no problem. But seriously, seriously, BakerForge.com is awesome. And I, I bought, I got a ton of the stuff from, from Koi and the guys. And this stuff is lights out. If you make anything with the BakerForge stuff, it's going to be lights out. So go get yourself some of that, and I'm getting more, frankly. I can't help myself. Last but not least are my friends at Total Boat. Totalboat.com, uh, they're makers of adhesive paints, primers, polishing compounds. They're for, from boaters and DIYers. They understand you need your projects to go smoothly. That's why they're constantly finding ways to make their original products better, easier to use, more sustainable, sustainable and less expensive so if you're in the if you're wanting to make some river tables they're the, they're the guys to get for you if you want to make some live edge uh, hybrid handle material boom get yourself some of that uh, get you some of that two-part epoxy and they have slow cure and then fast cure what's the matter don't worry it's good stuff don't, we're getting on total boat now. And then uh, you can get the, one of the best things, especially if you're a knife maker, you can, uh, you can dye your epoxy. <laughs> this is going to be one of the episodes. It's awesome. It's awesome. So get yourself some, um, get some of the, two, the, some of the dyes and uh, for sure definitely gets their two-part epoxies. I've been using their two-part epoxies exclusively and I love it and it's been really, I've been getting great results. It, it hardens perfectly and I'm very impressed with the Total Boat stuff. If you're a knife maker and you're looking for some um, two-part epoxies, that's the stuff for you. Uh, get yourself some of that UV Cure Clear Resin and uh, the Thick Set Casting Epoxy for all your river table needs. <laughs> river table needs. Get yourself some of that and then if, if you don't trust me, Keith Deason, Derek from Malden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, Jimmy Duresta. Keith, Jimmy Duresta, he is look, Jimmy Duresta is an interesting guy because he's taking dead animals and, and, and laying it in a box and stuffing that two-part epoxy in there. He's creating these weird sculptures. He's doing it a lot. He's doing it a lot. It's bizarre, but it's working for him, and Total Boat's having it. So go to TotalBoat.com, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, get yourself 10% off that Total Boat, and put some animals in the two-part epoxy. You know what I'm saying? All right, guys. We're fooling around here, but seriously, many thanks to our customers. Thanks to our sponsors. I am back in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, at the Center for Metal Arts. I am honored and thrilled, and I've been having such a good time with the most hospitable host, Patrick Quinn, the director of the Center for Metal Arts, as far as I'm concerned, the most important school for blades, for blacksmithing and for metal moving in the country. Patrick Quinn, what's going on? What's up? Not much. I got you with that gator piss. Yeah, I can't. I <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, it's good stuff. What can you do? Uh, once again, I can't thank you enough for, for having me down here. Um, Center for Metal Arts has been so important to me. If you're listening to this for the first time, I had Pat on three or four, three other times, and every time I come down here, we talk. And what's amazing to me about the Center for Metal Arts in historic Johnstown, Pennsylvania, is every single time I'm here, no matter what, 
you've made huge leaps and strides, strides in seeing your vision in the, the you're not sitting around there's always things happening you've always made um, huge strides in making the CMA better what's been going on my god um, <clears throat> Go ahead. Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> it's that's such a difficult question to, to answer because a lot a lot has been going on and um, it's all it's all very good and um, school's doing really well. Lots of exciting classes. I think generally, <clears throat> you know, this workshop that you're teaching is the first workshop of our 2023 season. So. Just excited to get get underway and um, have the students back after after a winter of um, doing projects around the shop and stuff like that, and, and get you know get the community back here and and have some life life in the classroom. Are you finding yourself having new more new students or more repeat more repeat students? I think a I think a good portion of both both of that. Yeah, yeah. I think the repeat students. Excuse me. Are um, that that percentage is pretty high? That percentage yeah. is pretty high, which is really exciting. Um, of course, I love attracting new students to the classroom and in our programs. And when they when they do sign up, it's really exciting. But um, I think it feels it feels really good to me when when I see the names pop up on the on the class lists um, that I recognize from year after year after year. So. Well, be one of the other things that I noticed just talking to some of the students is they're all coming from a far way away. Yeah. Like, that's a testament to what you're doing here. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're not from, none of them, this, this, this project, none of the, this class, none of them are from Pennsylvania. Well, well, one guy's from Johnstown. Oh, really? Yeah, and his neighbor worked in the pattern shop and gave him the what, toolbox. In, in the class that I'm, which, who's that? Who? Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Which is embarrassing. That's fine. Um, but there's so many That's, names coming I, through. That I think it's great every so often you have people local take the classes. Especially a, a fellow like this who's, I mean, he's really involved in the community, actually. He saved the um, Roxbury uh, band shell from getting torn down several years ago. So he's involved in preserving Johnstown history one way or another. So um, he came to the conference last year as uh, this local tour series that we had that people can come for a shorter period of time just to see the hammers run and um, was excited about what was happening here. He signed up for a class and his neighbor worked in this shop when the steel mill was running. They gave him a toolbox that he made in, in the pattern shop, the woodworker. It's really a wow. story. We were doing a tour a couple hours ago, and you were saying that one of the one of the things, if you come to Johnstown, you come to the Center for Middle Arts. It's not only just the shop where the teaching classes are, but the octagon is what really where you have the conference. You have the giant, monstrous hammers that you're re, re, um, you're rebuilding and you're getting to to work. And it, as you said in the past, and you said even, even a couple hours ago, you came to Johnstown to run those power, those hammers, those giant hammers. You were telling a story how, you know, these are giant, if you, like I said, go listen to the old Patrick Quinn episodes and you'll kind of get an idea what we're talking about. But you said that one of the people who used to work 
in this place with the last driver of the giant hammer came in 85 you said 82 85 81 i think 81 years old yeah tell me what it was like when he came in after being here since the last time he was in here since the 90s he comes in and he sees these giant hammers the way they are what was it like when he came here i think it was well there was something in the newspaper recently about CMA. I uh, can't remember the topic of the story uh, specifically, but um, he had been aware of what was happening down here and um, wanted to stop by for quite some time, but I think the, the gist of what I understood was at this point, after they read that newspaper article, him and his wife, his his wife sort of encouraged him to come down here. She came down here with him. She was a really nice, really sweet lady. And um, so it finally was like, all right, you know, I'm going to go introduce myself and, and see what see what's going on there. And um, <clears throat> really fortunate because, you know, I met one other one or two other people that have worked there, but not drivers of the hammer. One was the blacksmith and. One was what they called just the helper. So it was the guy that kind of ran the kiss blocks and the spring swages and, and you know, did general assistance around the hammer. Um, so I met those two guys, but, and as far as I knew at that point, they were the last remaining Smiths that uh, worked in that shop that were still with us. And so I'm sitting, in my office doing some work and I can see the window somebody pulls up and gets out of the vehicle and um, you know like like always I sort of I got up to greet them before they got to the door because at the moment we don't have a lot of signage and stuff like that so I want to make sure people know where where to go and that they're welcome and things like that and um, he he introduced himself as the driver of the hammer and uh, that he had worked in that shop from 1978 until 1992 when it when the doors you know closed for the steel mill and he brought a stack of uh, three and a half by five photographs from a, a real camera to show of the shop and they were just awesome does that was that the position that he referred to himself as? Like, if 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 that was the job, was being called the driver? Yeah, yeah. He he calls himself the driver, um, hammer driver, hammer operator, or something like that. Yeah. Did he say what he was doing back from the seventies to the nineties? He did. He said, well, he said that he um, got a job at the shop, in the blacksmith shop, as a helper. So as somebody who, um, you know, did spring tools, kiss blocks and swages and things like that, and was happy doing that. And then the current driver, while he was one of the helpers, had retired. So that spot sort of opened up while he was one of the helpers. He applied for that position and, and ultimately got it and became the driver of the hammer and the, the impression that I got from the story was that he was he was the young guy in the shop. Wow. And so all of a sudden he was put in a position to run the steam hammers and and um, I think traditionally that might be a position where um, 
you know, somebody with years of experience would take it or, you know, it doesn't turn over that quickly. And right. then for, for the, for the young buck in the shop to get that job was, was pretty big deal. Yeah. So could you paint the picture of what the, how, uh, how the steam hammers would work and then what each position would be operating one of those steam hammers, just to give an idea of what his position would be and what everybody else would be. Yeah, so I mean, I can only sort of speak about it in a sense, in the time frame of when he was working here and, and from the 70s to the 90s, it, it was, um, they basically were just doing, um, they're called job, jobney tests. Okay. So they would take material that was made at the steel mill from the blast furnaces or basic oxygen furnaces or whatever and they would uh, you know come in various size chunks of cutoffs or whatever and then they would forge them into inch and a half round bar so you take like a I mean for the sake of argument let's call it like a four by five by five inch chunk of material from the blast furnace and then you would heat it up in the gas forge and then forge it out to inch and a half round bar and then heat treat it and then send it to the lab to get tested and in that time period that's all that shop did was make round bar was make round bar they're they're i mean they're called jobney tests and they're important you know because that's how you understand if your heats were good, you know, the material you were making was what you thought it was and stuff like that, but, um, and I'm not downplaying anything that these guys did, but the, the romance of, you know, crane hooks and tongs and things that the steel mill needed, that, that wasn't what they were doing at that, that time period. Hmm. So, um, so they would be, there was basically that shop from the 70s to the 90s only operated with three smiths the driver the smith and the helper and the driver ran the hammer the smith held the hot material and the helper held all the tools on the on the hammer so for instance if you're doing a jobney test big tool that you use all the time is inch and a half round spring swages you know, or clapper dies or whatever. So that's what the role of the helper would be like. You know, get the get the kiss block up there, get it roughed out, octagonal, inch and a half, and then get the spring swages up to make it round bar. And then I don't quite know much beyond when they left the hammer, how their roles were in the shop, the heat treating and stuff like that. But at the hammer, that's how how it operated. And then how would the helper and the smith communicate with the driver? Just yelling? I think so. I, I don't think it was that loud in there. So I think they just kind of would talk to each other. And, um, and eventually, something like that, if I was to wager a guess, it gets very routine. Right. And so you probably can do your job without talking much and that's sort of speaks to what I talk about a lot when I think about the future of that shop and having a team of people on those hammers that has worked together for a long period of time so you you can 
really easily understand that verbal and nonverbal communication, which is important. One of the things when I think about your work, well, I, one of the things we, you and I talked about before, and I really feel strongly that I, one of the things about social media that I love is the ability to see, especially now, guys like you and I who've been on social media for a long time, you're able to see the evolution of somebody's work. You're, you're able to see how people progress as sculptors, which you want to see as artists. You want to see people progress. But you're able to see the intention of how people progress. And we, you and I have talked, we're going to talk a little bit more about how Johnstown has influenced the work that you do now, which is different than when you had CMA in New York. There was a different end, your time in Carbondale and all that stuff. But one of the things that I've always been fascinated by, and maybe just because I didn't have the experience with it, is you still have a huge part of the role of communication and forging where you're working with a striker. You've always had a lot of experience working with, in teams with striking and communication. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that it's way more, because the forging I've ever done has always been as a singular person. I would imagine that experience of being able to tell people, all right, we're going to do this now. You've, I've seen you strike on giant projects where you have three guys. There must be something very exciting about working with a team. And now that you're working on such a huge scale, there must have been some carryover in terms of how you have become a leader and run these kind of team forging experiences. Totally. And there's definitely carryover from the teamwork aspect. The stakes are just higher. I mean, there's high stakes when you're striking at an anvil as well, but I think, you know, at a hammer of that size, the stakes are much higher. So um, proceed with a certain amount of, of confident caution. However, I don't have experience on hammers like this, you know, like I, I, I wasn't raised and trained in an industrial smith shop or, you know, I haven't been running hammers like this my, my whole career and the group of, of smiths that, you know, I've started to kind of consider the core team of people working at that hammer have not had that experience either so we're all figuring it out together um, and as much as I like to joke around about you know doing cowboy stuff and you know taking chances and, and things like that that's not really the attitude or the mindset at, at a hammer like that we're we're all learning together, right? you know, and, and, and there's certainly people in the community that we can consult and I've visited a lot of industrial shops and, you know, um, there's, there's folks out there doing industrial forging that have been monumental in, in my uh, growth or journey towards running these hammers full time that I, I could, wouldn't be even doing the small amount of forging on them that we do now without their help and their guidance and things like that. 
you know, they know who they are and, and, and they, they're happy to help and just kind of be these like, uh, sort of support and background and just being really, really helpful. But, you know, really when it gets down to just standing in front of that hammer with, with the team, it's, it's a lot of care involved and, and taking your time, considering everything and, and just being careful, taking what you know works on a small scale and just doing it on a big scale. And then if you if you know that it works, proof of concept on like a two hundred pound hammer, and you just you know think about it, do the math, scale up appropriately your tooling and your material. Honestly, the results can be pretty predictable, and and then when you do forge something at the hammer that's successful, it's a it feels really good and. Um, you know, I'm quite happy with how it's going in the Octagon, and I'm happy with the, the team of Smiths that I work with, and everybody brings something unique and um, valuable to the team, and uh, I, I, I'm into it, man. I think, you know, I think the future is bright there, and then, I mean, I know I'm rambling a little bit no, here, no. but, like, <clears throat> when I think about the future of that shop, it's, it's not just for Pat to make sculpture, it's for the greater forging community to come and, and use it and I've said this before so forgive me for being repetitive but if you're a if you're a blacksmith or a sculptor and you want to make large-scale forge work the, the fact of the matter is you need you need a team of at least five people if you're using the crane there and what I'm doing right now is cultivating that team for your benefit so if you want to come here and make sculpture which is what I'm want this place to be it, it I'm going to also provide a team of smiths that can assist you to execute your idea what this this reminds me of things we you and I've been talking about and ever since I've been coming here you and I have been talking about something that's happening um, and I've been carrying this conversation over is that nowadays blacksmithing has become so popular, a lot of to do with Forged Fire, a lot of it's to do with social media, and you're starting to see this concept of industrial rec industrial recreation, basically. You're having these companies who, are, these people who are uh, learning uh, industrial acts on a recreational basis, which is relatively new. You, we, you and I were talking, there are more people buying Anyangs now than there ever have been. People are buying power hammers and hydraulic presses and putting them in their garages. One of the things that's amazing is you just installed four Anyangs, three 75, 77s? 178s. 178s. Giant and big, big, beautiful hammers. And what was really interesting to me, and I feel like it's very forward thinking on your part, is you seeing the fact that this isn't just a blacksmithing shop, but the fact that all these people are buying all this heavy-duty industrial equipment, but there's really no way to learn how to use them on any other way. 
Like, there's no, I mean, you know, if you, if like the old guy came to the place, he got his job and he earned his position and he ended up learning on the job. There's no on the job learning if you just put, you buy a Anyang and put it in your garage, unless you have experience on those things. And what you're offering is this opportunity to say, hey, look, I know you want to get involved with this. Let's just show you how to use this stuff uh, safely. Yeah, true. True story. No, but I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I know how, I know how, when you, when we were looking in the octagon and you were looking at the, we were showing us these giant hammers. You were explaining that when the helper puts down um, one of the, uh, the top tools, you have a special, a special uh, technique where the driver will, will, will slightly tap the tool to make sure that this, the tool is square. Because if it isn't square, it'll hit and then the arm of the top tool will swing up and it'll break your arm. Mm -hmm. The concept of this idea of safety seems to be your number one concern. And the fact that you want to kind of also teach other people mm -hmm. this safety is important because obviously these things, no, there's, no, there's no learning curve. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's all relative and, and safety has always been, you know, the main concern here, I mean, the main concern is education, and education is nothing without safety, so, you know, it's first and foremost how, how I operate here, but, um, yeah, the, you know, it's, I, I, I was self-taught, right, so I'm not here saying, like, oh, I had this formal education as a blacksmith, and, you know, um, that's why you should learn from me or whoever I, you know, have teaching here at CMA and stuff like that, but um, I actually was taught by others as well. I wasn't completely self-taught, but, um, you know, I've been forging at Power Hammers since day one of my forging career, which is, you know, at this point just over 20 years, and so there wasn't an, a real opportunity to learn efficient power hammer forging techniques when I was getting involved in the craft and there wasn't YouTube or Instagram or anything like that. I learned from people and I learned from experience. And, um, you know, what I think is really important at CMA is, is sharing that. And that's what, you know, my curriculum is all about, um, focuses almost entirely on power hammer forging and techniques and I draw on the 20 years I've had experience using these machines on a daily basis almost and, and, I, and I translate that into cohesive educational you know projects and, and all that kind of stuff and, and, and I you know couldn't be happier with that sort of outlet of it because of, of how many people the term you used was recreational industrialism or something like that, right? Well, I mean, yes, more or less. Well, I mean, it's true. And it's like anybody who has a hammer uh, understands that it's not a toy. Um, but a lot of people get the hammers without knowing how to use them and then just do their best. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of smart people out there and... I, I know that a lot of people understand inherently safety and know 
not to put your hands between the dies without somebody telling them that, but you really want to get maximum utilization of this machine to create the work you want to create. It, you owe it to yourself to, to just, you know, take a take a power hammer workshop somewhere. And I, I feel like this is a shameless like CMA. No, whatever, it's fine. It's like just trying to explain, you know, sort of the philosophy behind the, the curriculum that we have here. There's a there's a thoughtfulness in everything you do here, and there always has been. And what's interesting to me is part of that thoughtfulness has to do with the efficiency of the decisions that you're making. Math has become such a huge part of your curriculum in terms of forging mathematics. What's the name of the class? <clears throat> I call it Calculate Your Forgings, and it has another name as well, depending on what the outlet is of what you calculate. But um, this particular year, it focuses on a collaborative sculpture effort, but um, success is dependent on your understanding of volumetric calculations. When you were younger, in school, yeah. were you good at math? No. Did you hate math? Yes. What was it about it when you were a kid that you just didn't, it did not work with you? When I reflect back on my childhood education, specifically math, I now have the feeling that the reason why I did not grasp it and do well with it is because of how abstract the concepts were. So nothing presented to me by an educator, and I'm not knocking my teachers, they're good teachers, it's, it's more of a comment about the right. entire system, um, made any sense to anything relevant to me. Relevant to you. And that's why I think it never clicked. What point in your life did mathematics become vital that you get better at them? Um, I believe that point in my life was when I started forging. I don't think I realized it until two years ago. I wow. Know, I don't know if it's been two years. I, I can't do the... Well, it's, I think it's very fascinating because I felt the same way. I hated math. I was not good at math. I despised it. I, would, I flunked out of math. And until I started forging where we were doing railings and I enjoyed the mathematics behind it, I had to really train myself in my, you know, almost early 30s. No, I would say my, you know, mid-20s into the 30s. I had to train myself to read a tape measure. I couldn't even really, I couldn't do sixteenths. I couldn't read it. I couldn't read it. I didn't understand it. And I felt as though in order for me to get better at something that I was really enjoying, I had to force myself to, to like it. And it got to the point where I went from, I hate math, I'm not good at math, to this matters to me and I'm going to work harder to understand it. And it gets to, it makes me feel as though with a lot of people who say, I'm not good at this, 
I'm not, I don't, I'm not good at that. I feel like it, you're not good at it because it doesn't matter to you yet. When you find something that makes it matter to you, then maybe all of a sudden you can start to connect. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened. Right, right, right. All of a sudden you wanted to understand what was going on and then you've kind of forced yourself to appreciate what math can do for you. I realized that foraging was just three-dimensional math to a certain degree. And um, I, I got frustrated guessing, guessing the volumes that I started with. And then I thought about the money that you have to spend to run an industrial forge shop. And I was like, there's no wiggle room to guess there. You can't, in good conscience, invest that kind of, you know, capital or whatever you want to call it for fuel, material, labor and not know or be 100% certain that you had the correct volume to make the shape that you wanted to make. And then that was just such a eye-opening revelation. And I thought, well, why don't I know the volume for every shape I want to make? <laughs> so that was sort of the start the start of of it. And then, you know, it, it wasn't me figuring it out by myself. You know, my my um, teaching partner for this class, Joe Doyle, who's a great friend and a really strong CMA supporters, very talented with the math and he's the one that really made it make sense to me and most importantly allowed me to feel comfortable not knowing. Right. You know, which I don't really think my teachers in grade school did, but it was meeting him, expressing that notion that I just talked about and he basically was like, let's, let's figure this out. Let me, let me, let me make this, let me help, the, help you make sense of this concept. And so then he basically like, did kind of the same things you just did, but was basically like, well, why don't you understand it? Like, what, what is it about it that's problematic? And it was the irrelevance of it when you were a child and the delivery of right. it, you know? And then once I sort of like kind of got over that hurdle with him and, and he knows me really well at this point and was able to basically create educational math curriculum that related directly to forging and it's like if you can if you can if you're going to make if you're going to forge you know I'm sorry but anything 
Well, it's a forging is a manipulation of mass. Right. Well, what you know when the when the okay. So here's what it is. When the when the when the math problem is how much volume do you need to make an anvil? How many cubic inches? All of a sudden, you're pretty interested. Right. You know. Right. And it's not like you know, a train driving in one direction at a certain speed and, right. you know, what time do they meet? Right. Who cares? Right. I'm not a conductor. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm a blacksmith, so all of a sudden, you know, when it's framed in a manner, you know, around making a, a large-scale forging, you all of a sudden want to, you want to know. Right, and that's what—that's all it took, right? So now we've made that workshop, like, and we, you know, what happened actually—the the way it really worked. Did I tell the story? Go ahead about the American College of the Building Arts. No, go ahead. <laughs> well, we—I was invited to teach there for a week. Decided to do a collaborative sculpture, and I brought a maquette. Um, you know, a small scale sculpture, which all of my sculpture really is. And so then we had the students measure off the maquette and do the math to scale it up and then calculate the volumes for each forging out of the stock that I brought, which was like big round bar or whatever. And it was incredible. And I, I won't sugarcoat it in the beginning when we sat down with the students in a classroom with desks and a blackboard and started going over these equations and, and ways to understand cubic inches in a certain shape over a certain distance uh, you know they they rolled their eyes and they hemmed and they hawed and um, it, it was a little bit like pulling teeth and I just felt like I was in grade school again and some of the students were really good at it and excited and some were on their phones and um, I just was, you know, and then you could identify like those, these are the kids that were just like in my class, you know, right. but um, we executed the sculpture and there was no denying the success because it was literally the exact same thing just scaled up at the end and then when we all kind of we're finished and we're sitting around a table kind of taking everybody's pulse on how they felt about the workshop and things like that and you know I think Joe said what what was you know generally just a, a, a general question to the group like what what was your favorite part about it we were just absolutely floored that the majority of them their first answer was the math and uh, that's for me personally when I was like, oh shit, like I'm gonna turn this in, you know, we gotta, we gotta offer this kind of workshop at CMA. It's just too important. And how has that, I mean, how has that affected how you see your old work? Would you now, would you, do you look at your old work and think, how could I scale this up? Or oh, yeah. are those some things, yeah. some things that you wouldn't do? No, I look at all my old work now as maquettes for bigger work, you know, and I think that's a natural product of having access to large-scale forging equipment. So I didn't make the sculptures originally as maquettes, but 
I, I see them now as mock cats and um, we're starting to think about translating some of them into large scale. I definitely use math first and but I, I do have to say that like I have a problem using math off of a sculpture that I didn't originally intend to be bigger or that I didn't use math with in the first place because math is like it's like there's a rhythm to it and so a lot of my smaller sculptures it's all about relationships and scales that are pleasing visually like distances between things that relate to thicknesses of material that relate to heights and I found that like some of the littler pieces, if you just simply calculate a scale increase, they don't, doesn't work visually. So I almost have to consider it ahead of time for it to be successful. I understand. Good, because I don't know if I do. Well, the other thing is, is like, there's, a, there's always this very interesting concept in regards to scale with sculpture. And a lot of it is, when is it a maquette and when is it sculpture? And a lot of it is, especially with metalwork, it's based on what you have at the, at the time. You can only work with this, the scale that you have. I mean, the sculptures I've ever worked on have all been stuff that I know in my mind, I can work on this by myself. Mm -hmm. So it limits me based off of the facilities I have and the abilities that I have and the amount of work I want to put into it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to make a 21-foot sculpture if I can't do it, you know, with just being, being me. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you look at stuff like your work, and I can think of about another five other metal sculptors who also make, a, I, would, I don't refer to as maquettes, I would say approachable in terms of size. Mm -hmm. Like you can, you can, when I say approachable, I almost mean like people can, when they see it, they can see it in their house. You know that's approachable in their house, not on the in the on the on the in the yard. So I I I, I I'm interested that you that you look at your work and now you see it as maquettes when you didn't before you figured out that you could possibly turn it into a larger scale sculpture. You never thought about it like a larger scale sculpture. This is just I'm making this now. This is what it is. I I find that the transformation the transformation is the wrong word. The evolution of your work in general as a as a blacksmith. And as a sculptor, has completely changed—not completely changed. It's evolved since you've moved here to Johnstown. How would you think? How do you see yourself? How has Johnstown? We're going to be a big topic. How has Johnstown changed you? Um, in more ways than than I can really. Um, describe in, in one sentence. Okay. 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. He's got to go take a phone call. I'm going to talk. I'm going to fill some time. Go ahead. We'll be back. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot tell you enough. I cannot tell you enough. He had to go to the bathroom. You know, listen, we've been having a couple, we had a couple of drinks. Let's face it. Let's face it. We had a couple of drinks. We're here at the Center for Metal Arts. 
I'm here teaching this friction folder class. It's been amazing. The students have been coming from all over the place. And uh, we're staying at the rectory, the place that uh, is a dormitory, which is awesome, beautiful place. And um, it's been amazing. I, I highly suggest, without question, being involved with the Center for Mental Arts, either following them on Instagram or getting on their newsletter or also thinking about going to their uh, conference. They do a conference in September and they do these amazing sculpture demos with these monstrous hammers. They have a sculptor who comes and we have a, there's, we're going to talk about the sculptors that's coming from Tasmania this year. Uh, it's a small price to pay. I think there's a small entry fee and you can actually watch these giant industrial steam hammers work. Uh, it's really hard to in, in this day and age to actually see them working normally. Uh, but what's Center for Metal Arts and what Patch is doing is he's really showing the metalworking community something that you don't normally see. Uh, he and I've talked about this for a long time, but is that, that concept of this industrial pursuit uh, as a hobby and um, it's it's fascinating. What were we talking about before you left? You, you asked me a really broad question. Okay. Good. All right. How has, now we're in Johnstown, how do you think Johnstown has changed you? I mean, I assume you're referring to as a sculptor? Anywhere. Anyway. Because I, I'm convinced not only the math, but there are other things that you, in your work, <laughs> it hasn't changed completely, but it's evolved. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, seeing Johnstown and seeing these, this, the history of this particular building and seeing the way people make tongs. You've changed the way you design tongs. Mm-hmm. You've changed the way you, you make your, your hand hammers, which I'm desperate for, for one of the new hand hammers. Because your style, is, your style is based off of what you've seen and collected and learned while you're here. Yeah, yeah, and I think... Did you think, number one, did you think that you'd, you'd make these changes when, before you arrived? No, there was nothing about the evolution of my work being influenced by my surroundings that was predetermined or even thought of that just all has happened naturally. And I think every sculptor is influenced by their surroundings and you know, surroundings can be anything. They can be your environment. They can be the people that you're with. They can be the job you work at. It can be anything, you know, but I think like for me specifically, the, the environment here in the city and the industrial heritage, it, it just plays a huge role in everything from the stuff that I like to teach, the tools that I like to make, and the sculpture I like to create. And I, I just can remember it like moving here and, you know, walking around with Dan or whatever through the woods and the old ruins, the steel mills and stuff like that. And him and I would always create work that you know, was inspired by a shape we saw or a structural beam that we saw or you know, a building that had been torn down or fallen down and then what that did to the the I-beams or where the torch cut it and, the, you know, just stuff like that. And so 
it just kind of like just leaks into your creative process and whether it's through functional or sculptural stuff. The, the interesting thing is, is the, the, I would separate some of your sculptural work from the practical stuff. Uh, practical, it's not the, don't, don't take that as an offense. As in terms of the tongs and your tool making. I'm offended. Don't be offended. I, I said don't be offended. I said don't be offended. I gotta go. <laughs> you already went. You went to the bathroom five minutes ago. So, I mean, the, the, your tongs and your hammers have been influenced by the tooling that you've seen here while you're here. Yes. Your sculpture has, an, has only been influenced by the surroundings. You showed me this new sculpture that, that's right here that is so amazing. It's the first that I believe of your landscape sculpture. It's on your Instagram, you just posted it. And when I first saw it in person, it looked to me like Johnstown. Like the bottom part definitely has this air of being mountainous. It also has this, it denotes uh, the river that right in front of the shop. You have this kind of these bridge-like qualities. There's this bridge in front of, right, that, that separates it brings from the from the factory into the town. There's I don't remember seeing any work of yours that would I would consider landscape, but it's not out of it's not it comes from the same family as your older work before you got to Johnstown. Versus your tongs, your hammer, the tool making that you've done seems to be a direct result of being exposed to the historical tools and tongs and tool making of this shop in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Shall I comment on Please, that? tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> tell me I'm wrong. No, you're right, you're right. I, I, you know, when I look at this work that we're looking at right now, and um, I consciously set out to make a Johnstown landscape and I generally never consciously since since Carbondale at least set out to make anything representative of anything I think you know in Carbondale my work was they were definitive birds right I mean they were abstract but you would look at it and it, it represented a bird and then I would take different aspects of bird anatomy or flight patterns or something like that to influence a particular piece. But ever since, you know, I left Carbondale and went to CMA in New York and, and um, up until now, I felt like I've just continued experimentation without real you know, concept or, or goals. I, I think realistically, until I got to Johnstown, I was experimenting with um, how to push the relationship between what balances on the kinetic sculpture versus what, you know, the general public considers the counterweight. And I was trying to really push that relationship so there was no visual quote-unquote counterweight. And, everything was more an element of the sculpture rather than what you would think of as like a traditional mobile. Um, and then when I got to Johnstown, the industrial 
landscape started to really leak into my uh, aesthetic for the stable parts of my sculpture. And then, um, you know, I, I gotta say that, you know, I worked a lot with Jake James and he does a lot of landscape, landscape works and he came here recently and he did we did a collaborative sculpture which was really fun and uh he he did a he did a johnstown landscape and it was um <clears throat> a really direct representation of the steel mill and the employees and the stone bridge and the floods and, and stuff like that but you know i've always been influenced by his work and, and subject matter and things like that and, and um I thought, man, I, you know, I, well, I started making horizontal work recently without the, the conscious thought of it being a landscape. But, uh, you know, recently I was thought, well, you know what, I, I'd really like to, to take a crack at a Johnstown landscape, a PQ style Johnstown landscape. And this is the, um, this is the result of those efforts of which I'm just super excited about to the point where I want to continue with this theme, um, which is a feeling I haven't felt since the Bird series in Carbondale, and uh, structured the collaborative forging, you know, collaborative sculpture calculate your forging workshop around this particular sculpture. So students are going to come here in two weeks and we're going to make a double scale version of that. We're going to go around town and I'm going to show them the stuff that informs this kind of thing like mountain landscapes in the distance industrial steel ruins i mean i see the bald eagle fly the river almost every day you know and it's just like hopefully it's all going to come together we're going to measure off the maquette do the volumetric calculations see the city and make it work so now you see all the sculpture that you the sizing of the sculpture that you used to do, now you're seeing them as, all right, this is this size is not the sculpture. This is the beginning stages, and you're preparing to make it up a bigger scale. I am. I, I don't know that it was that conscious. Like, when I made this sculpture, I made it as a full-scale sculpture. What's interesting is is when you do the when you have an artist come and you do the uh, symposium, the uh, conference, the Cambria Iron Conference. The most amazing thing, and we we talked about it last episode, but I want to bring it back, is that you have a steam hammer. You got a steam hammer, the same configuration and movement of the giant hammer in the octagon, where you have a driver. And you have a, a, a helper, and you have a smith. You've before you do the demo on in the octagon, you do a smaller version on the steam hammer. That's that's the smaller version of everything, so you can do almost this choreography. So when you get to the big day, and you have the giant block of steel, yeah. you guys already know what you're doing. That had to have been a huge. Uh, part new part of your sculpture creation is the concept of let's do it small because it's going to be big. Absolutely, absolutely. Although this piece was not designed or created 
with those steam hammers in mind. So this one, even the double scale, if you could take this double it, can still be executed in the classroom. And I, and I do think, and maybe that was conscious. Like I didn't want it to be, I mean, I'm not ready in 2023 to offer classes in the octagon. I was about to suggest that that's, that's okay. yeah, you're not there, you're not there yet. I, I, I sense that coming down the pipes and I've got some ideas, but this particular thing, and, and maybe it was in the back of my mind as I was creating it, but this double scale can still be done in the classroom. There's another mockette in here that I have to talk about. Hmm. It's fucking awesome because I saw what the giant version of it was. Hmm. You've made, you've forged two 200-pound bridge handles. Hmm. Well, there'll be, there'll be 300 and something with the legs. You've forged 300-pound, yeah, so 300-pound handles. They're huge. However, in the octagon, you got them hidden only because it's so monstrous in there. All of a sudden, you don't realize that you forged. You you when you were in New York, you forged. Uh, you I remember you jump welded and made a tube of two part. That's the, the hammer right there. I remember that. It's a small. It's ten, a ten pound. A ten pound hammer. And I remember when you were working on it. I remember actually when you, I was up there. You were saying you had problems with it uh, for, when you forged welded. Yeah. Talk to me about these bridge anvils that you forged. Tell me how you woke up at three o'clock in the morning to start, start the forge. I want to know the whole story of how you forged these giant anvils. I. I don't know, man. I um, it's hard to answer in that question because I feel like my entire career as a toolmaker and as a sculptor, honestly, because there's no real difference between the two as far as process is concerned, has been leading up to this point. I mean, ever since. It well before I even knew of Johnstown I, I wanted to make an anvil I since th think that the day that I learned anvils, old anvils were forged I wanted to forge one but for the longest time it just never seemed like a reality but then when this whole Johnstown move and relocation and historic shop restoration came into play and be started to become a reality. I thought like this, if there's any facility where the stars aligned for, you know, American blacksmiths to forge anvils again, it's this one. And so, you know, we've been here, this is the start of our fifth year and, you know, the 20th of my forging career. And um, a couple months ago, I embarked on the journey of attempting to forge um, two 300 or so pound bridge anvils. And um, 
like everything that to, that you mentioned earlier since I've been here, all my tool making has been inspired by and informed by the historical artifacts that I found in the shop, you know, and so when I thought about like, okay, I can really give a go at making an anvil, like a real anvil, you know, um, I wanted to do a bridge anvil because that's what they made in that shop. Can you describe what a bridge anvil is? My my definition, or what I know of as a bridge anvil, is you know standard London pattern anvil top, but then two legs that bolt to the ground rather than a base that you then have to make another base for. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So no waste and no flared out footprint. No, no flared out foot. Waste transitions directly into the legs of the handle. So what would be the benefit back in the day? Why would they would use the bridge handles? I think there's a lot of different theories to that. What I think is one major benefit is it was a way to create a large anvil or small anvil, you know, um, that you can bolt directly to the floor and you don't have to make another base floor. So rather than make a 400 pound anvil, which, you know, I have a few in my shop London pattern, hay button, whatever, something we all know what, what it looks like. Right. Then what? You got to get the stump, fabricate the base. The bridge anvil allows you to just bolt the anvil to the ground. It eliminates the need for a base. And, and to me, that's a big benefit of it. You know, some people, I think, and there's definitely value to this theory you know you can use the legs to bend as like a bending form oh, yeah. or you can you know if you're making big curves they can like pass under the anvil oh, yeah. there's lots of different ways i think people can use these but besides the historical integrity of the location that we're in i like the fact that you can just make the anvil and bolt it down right so what was the Bring me back to the day you started to forge those two anvils. What time did it start? Anything we have to forge in there, anvil related or not, you know, the furnace has to get lit well, well beforehand. So, um, you know, I'm in there at the wee hours of the morning lighting the furnace and I can't say specifically what what time it is, but time enough to go back to sleep until the forge gets up. To oh, sleep. so you'd light it and then go home, or no? I don't go home. Yeah, I was. But you just like no. curl up in the corner yeah. at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and we did this in in December, and I know we've had a mild winter, but we we had a cold snap in December, and I remember sleeping or trying to sleep two feet away from that furnace and I couldn't get warm. 
just gonna get warm and um, and you know I think it was it was a cold day. It was a cold day. So you, how long did it take for that steel to heat up to where you could start to hit it? Um, four hours maybe. Wow. That's maybe being conservative. You know, I think like what makes it difficult here, and this is part of the hurdle of turning a industrial forge shop into a a sculpture studio or an educational facility or a more of an intermittent foraging facility is I have the distinct disadvantage of letting my furnace cool down. All these other industrial forges, they never turn their furnaces off. You know, they go home, they'll turn it down, but the furnace never gets below a thousand degrees. So to take a furnace of this size with thick walls and a thick hearth and everything like that and bring it up to forging temperature with 400 freaking pounds of steel in it takes time. So um, as I mentioned, the way it operates now needs some work and development but we do the best we can right i mean yeah you were you were saying that uh one of the things you realized was that you didn't like that the forges are not sufficient enough to get things done as quickly as you can what would you do to change the forges that you have to accommodate i mean what do you what in your mind what are you looking for that would benefit making sculpture large scale sculpture, the ability to have 400 fucking pounds of steel in there waiting to heat up. What is your, in your mind's eye, what do you think you're going to do? Because you're going to do it. Yeah. You know, I'm not a furnace builder. And I don't want to be a furnace builder. There's probably an aspect to what I do that's going to force me to learn about furnace building. But I can't say specifically, I can just tell you that any furnace that big, and this furnace ain't even that big, dude, compared to other industrial shops, takes that amount of time to heat up. So it's like, you know, you might hear me hemming and hawing about the, the heat up time for 400 pounds of steel. And the problem isn't really the furnace. The problem is that I'm lighting it cold. Right. You know, the problem is the furnace isn't running 24-7. It's like if, if I ran that furnace for two days straight and then put 400 pounds of steel on it, it would get hot much quicker. So quick that I probably wouldn't complain. It would be akin to... 400 pounds of steel getting hot in any big furnace. Right. There's, there's a certain amount of time that a furnace set to get things up to forging temperature gets 400 pounds of volume up to forging temperature. It's, it's an equation. You know, the part that what makes it difficult here is I don't, I didn't put it in a hot furnace, I put it in a cold furnace. Well, obviously, but he can't possibly afford to have the furnace going weeks on end. I, I 
you know, to be honest, this time around, I tried it. I did a little experiment where I, I ran the furnace the day before at a low temperature. And I think we even hung out here later than normal just to let it, just to get that mass up to something so that when I came in in the morning, it wasn't ice cold. And it might have helped a little bit, but still, it was like that initial 200-pound block to to forge it into the preform to make the sculpture was the longest part of the process. And it's pretty tough when you take a piece of metal out of the furnace put it under a 3,000 pound hammer and hit it with all you've got it doesn't really do anything Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. And, and this is this is gonna sound <sighs> I hate to say this because people are gonna be like you're so spoiled man or, oh, or come, whatever come on, don't but worry about that just to think like there were moments where I'm sitting in front of that hammer thinking I need a bigger hammer. That, they, that makes perfect sense. But that's not really true. The truth is I needed more heat. And that's what I teach my students too. It's not about the size of the hammer. At the, even at the anvil, I'm like, this isn't about grabbing a four pound hammer and trying to swing for the fences. The heat is your best friend any forging process. Without the heat, doesn't matter how big your hammer is, you're either damaging your body or you're wasting your energy. And it translated directly to what we were doing in the octagon. So it is totally facetious saying that I wish I had a bigger hammer because I do know the problem was Right. So how do you, how do you go about forging a 200 pound anvil? Um, you decide to make a career out of forging and then you spend 20 years figuring out how to move mass and then translate that over to anvil making. There you go. I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. But the, 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 the cool, one of the cool parts was you were explaining that you had put some, you made some holes in the mass and then you built some fixtures to actually hold. Because obviously, what kind of tongs can you use to pick up a pair of you can't use tongs to pick up a 200-pound block of steel. You can, and we have tongs like that here. Um, the problem is tongs to hold tapers. Okay. And so that's why I, I engineered a, a different kind of holding system to hold the anvil, um, largely inspired by the Lilico book. And... Um, People, people on my uh, hammer forging team, like Greg Gaynor, for instance, who's got a really good brain for that sort of stuff. You know, we went back and forth over and over again with different kind of tooling we can engineer to hold these weird, heavy shapes. So, I didn't take any pictures of your animals for the reason of I know that it's still in progress. Yeah. And I also respect the fact that 
there is a degree of, you know, you want, you hold things sacred. I asked you, and you can, you can decide, if you don't want to talk about this, it's fine. I asked you if you were ever going to teach an anvil forging class. But do you mind telling me what you said? Um, I said that I really, the educator in me really wants to. And I expressed a little bit of hesitancy uh, for several reasons. One, you know me. Yeah. I don't teach anything until I know it inside and out. And, and I don't yet know it inside and out. However, I don't think your question was about how quickly will I teach a Danville Maker class. And then I also expressed some hesitation about it because um, I just don't know how comfortable I am or when I'll be ready to release that information and it's very difficult to talk about because I've, my passion is, is sharing what I know about the craft of forging with other people. But this particular project has me a little bit... Protective. Confused and conflicted. Yeah, I feel very protective over how I've made it a reality. And it's not a secret. I didn't invent the anvil making process, but I I made specific tools, and I you know, and it's been been years in the making, and and I'm sure it's gonna be out there, but you know, it, I just kind of want it to be on my own terms, and and I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet to just take years of research development and just you know give it away yeah and I mean I, I it's hard dude because I love giving it away I understand I love giving it away but this particular one I'm just I'm holding my cards close to my chest for something there I hope I didn't make you feel uncomfortable no. by asking that because this is something that, that, that I understand in terms of I've been in situations where I've designed something and I've spent you know years an art studio, an art student, years dealing with color, years with dealing with these things only for someone to just decide to make my knives and use the terminology that I use. Whether or not, I mean it's like verbatim. There's a couple guys who've just totally knocked off my stuff to the point where I wanted to not make it anymore. Yeah, yeah. And and that that's something and then, like I you know that's something very understandable. Yeah. Like that's a that's a real problem. And the weirdest part is, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that coming from as sculptors, you don't see a ton of people stealing sculpture ideas. Not a ton of them, but like when there's you're talking, some, there's some. There's some, but not as much as like 
when, we, when I look at your work, I can separate out your sculpture from your tooling. Mm -hmm. And the tooling has um, a real history with where you've been and where you are and what you've seen, right? Your sculpture is different. The Pat Quinn sculpture is, is the, the physical manifestation of who you are. A pair of tongs aren't a physical manifestation of your feelings or your thoughts or your history. Right. You know, there are parts of it there. I see things when I look at <clears throat> when I'm looking at this landscape sculpture, I see Pat Quinn parts in your tongs. I see it, no problem. I see that connection. But at the same time, you don't call those tongs sculpture. Right. Right. So I can totally understand the feeling of there's almost this blurred line because you have these things that you've you know made that are incredible your tongs your hammers now you know hopefully in the future you're going to have anvil your anvils in the shop here for your students to use that's the plan but there is a very sculptural quality to them and i understand the personal i understand the personal feelings about not wanting other people to make them. i see it I feel it because I wouldn't want it. You know, there's a lot of things that I don't show just because that's the thing. It's like all of a sudden it's going to be like, you know, my stuff. And, it's, and, it, and that's the hardest part. That's the hardest part. The reason why I don't sell the friction folders is because I don't want to, I want to teach them. I want to teach them here. And I like that, and I don't care if people make the friction folders. I don't care if they go into the friction folder business or the way I make friction. I don't give a shit about that because I've made that decision that that's, this is separate. Like, I'm not going to, Fader Knives is not going to sell friction folders. So I was able to make that connect. You're going to want to make some friction folders at home. I'm teaching how to make them, make them at home. I know other sculptors who have te taught blacksmith class. Fred Christ. Fred Christ taught a blacksmithing class, he was a sculpture class. He showed you how to make his sculpture. And he said to the class, just don't make my sculpture. You can make it here, but that's it. And it was, a, it was, I don't know, flawed thinking. I mean, you can't tell somebody, here's how you make my sculpture, now just don't make it. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's something you can do. <clears throat> yeah, you know, and I think like with, with, with tool making, you know, if you think about the tongs that I make, I did the same thing. I I held those techniques. I held my cards close to my chest until I was ready. And then when I was ready, I was ready. Right. And then I let I let everybody have it. And if you came to take a workshop, that's your that's your business now. You, I mean, I. It's like letting your kid go to college, right? Right. You put it out there in the world, and then it takes its own fucking. Oops. No, it's okay. You know, and, and but I was ready, so I knew that you know I would see those tongs popping up, you know, on social media, and I'm I'm at peace with that because. Well, for one, I, I didn't invent those tongs. Like, I, I set out to recreate someone else's work, which makes it different than a sculpture. Right. And so, and I also, most of what I do is to help 
preserve the craft for future generations and how to do it. And, and, and I felt like those tongs were an example of that. And so largely, I eventually want that information to be out in the world. And I want people to make better tongs so that they can make their work easier and more efficiently and all that other stuff we talk about all the time. And with sculpture, you know, it's different because it's harder to copy and it is so representational of the person who makes it, whereas the tongs, I, and I, I had this conversation recently with some friends, it's like, when I teach tool making at CMA, I treat it a lot like, you know, a trade school from the early 1900s. And I'm like, I lay it out, this is how you make this. And I challenge the students to make it look exactly like my demo. And there's millions of ways to make tongs. You can make them any way you want, but when you come to CMA to learn how to make the tongs that I've learned how to make, the challenge is to make those tongs. Right. And you're successful when you make tongs, lay them out on the table, and you can't tell the difference between mine and yours. And um, that is important to me because I'm teaching you how to forge and how to make a specific tool. And again, it's like that era of time where you like learn that shit in high school. It sounds like efficient proficiency. Yeah, and there's, in that particular educational atmosphere, there's no business with individuality. It's not what this is about. Right. This is about making something to spec to a drawing with certain proportions. Like, can you do that? I can. Can you? And I show you how. And then you take that information, you do whatever you want with it. Hopefully it helps you with your own practice. With sculpture, you can make that drawing of that sculpture there, but it would look different if somebody else made it. Yeah. You know? Because there's self-expression in it. There's subtle nuances to what I value about the process and how I want my surface to look. You know, things like that, that don't really apply as much to a tool. Speaking of sculpture, the new conference, the new Cambria Iron Conference is coming up in September. Yeah. Last year you had Zach Noble. Yeah. Doing beautiful sculpture. Yeah. Year before that, you had Jake James doing beautiful sculpture. So every time now we're doing the Cambria Iron Conference, you have a new sculptor. You're gonna do a new demo. Correct. You're gonna have them come early. You're gonna do it. You're gonna do a mock head on the small steam hammer, and then you're gonna make a giant version of it for people to watch. Who's coming this year? Pete Matilla. Tell me about him. He is a sculptor. I think he lives right now in Tasmania, and um, 
I've just always looked up to him and inspired by his work, appreciated his design sense, his technical ability, everything. Um, and always in the back of my mind since the move to Johnstown, I felt like he would be a really good candidate on big hammers. You know, he's worked in, you know, uh, industrial train yard blacksmiths, I believe, blacksmith shops, and um, has experience with somewhat bigger hammers from what I can tell. I don't know specifically a ton about his history, but always in my heart, I just felt like his work would translate well to big hammers. Um, and so really excited that he agreed to come down here and do this. So how long before the conference will he arrive to prepare? I believe he's going to basically be here for a month. And his workshop this year is two weeks. So most previously sculptors who come here to demonstrate will teach a one-week workshop prior to the conference and then do the conference as kind of their final hurrah and then, you know, head out or whatever after that. With Pete, because he's coming from so far away, I felt like it would be advantageous to have him do a two-week workshop. And this year, the conference is in the middle of his workshop so that we can use the large-scale forging in the collaborative sculpture. Wow. So whereas before, there was a lot of pressure on the demonstrator to kind of start and finish a work in one day, you know? And that's possible, especially because the shop doesn't yet have electricity and all the conveniences you have from a modern shop. The octagon. So, yeah, so it encouraged them to think Think about one piece forging. Think about something that, you know, is achievable in a day that can stand alone as a sculptural object. But so with Pete, we're kind of, it's the first time we're sort of thinking about it a little bit differently. And, you know, of course, both excited and nervous. Um, but I think it's, it's cool to kind of release yourself from the constraints of one day. I can't say specifically if we're gonna have more time in the octagon or not for that class, but I can say if you make this large-scale forging in the octagon that you want to include in the collaborative sculpture and it takes further refinement or bending or cutting or whatever that can be done in the CMA classroom it gives you the opportunity to continue to work on that piece beyond the one day of the conference. Hmm. You know, so that's yeah. sort of the idea behind changing the, the structure of it. I love it because it's going to be more than just that one day. Yeah. You're going to be able to encompass more time and that's going to end up with something kind of more magnificent. Yeah. Not that the, the other things weren't magnificent. Oh, oh totally. Yeah. And then, I mean, everything grows naturally. Right. Right. It's like you can't. You know, I, I didn't, you know, things things get thought of and and they happen according to the natural way that they happen and this is how it's happening. Tell me more about other classes you have going on this year and what we have to expect. 
for the next year because you said some bombs. You dropped some bombs on me. I'm not 100% sure you're willing to talk about any of the bombshells. But you got some yeah. heavy hitters showing up, and we could radio tease the shit out of that. But who? what do you have going on this year, and what do we have to expect for next year? This year, um, you know, I think most most excited really about um, the conference and maybe it's because it's taking it's going to take the most amount of effort and energy and it just kind of feels like the conference always feels like a, a yearly celebration at CMA of, of the craft and the historical restoration and preservation and a celebration of, of all the kind of work we do in that shop and the community that helps out and all that kind of stuff and, and in a way it, it's kind of like a capstone on our our year of of workshops um so i think for that reason kind of have the most tingly feelings and butterflies in my stomach for that but we've just got a really strong lineup uh this year of you know a, a really diverse group of instructors teaching all kinds of different stuff and, and your you know your workshop marks the the inaugural one of the season and then you know Elizabeth Brim will be here tomorrow to teach a great week-long beginner class I, I'm always tweaking and working on the forge and focus and I'm super excited about this year's um, group and the, and the curriculum that I've been working on for that um, you know, this year that has changed a little bit as well. Generally, how I run that is I do two weeks, and then a visiting instructor does two weeks, and then I come back in the end for two more weeks. And um, I've decided this year to teach four weeks straight, and then have the visiting instructor come in and do the last two weeks. And uh, we have. You know Matt Jenkins. Do you follow him? Yeah. That dude is monster, incredible teacher, and he taught a he taught a one week workshop here last year, and kind of like John Williams, I was just blown away. Like some teachers come here and you're just like these people were born to teach people, but he's got such a great mind for creating jigs and how you bend things and design something handmade and, and make it repeatable without losing the integrity of it being handmade, right? So for the Forging Focus, it's my opportunity to teach people how to forge, right? So for me, I do a ton of technique-based exercises, a lot of tool making and, you know, uh, repetition, um, exercises that don't have tangible outcomes like just different kind of tapers tenons and like getting you familiar with hammers and like how to use the dies right and top tools and then you know it's, it's not all BS like you do make a ton of tangible objects that you can use and things like that but I decided not to break that up and to teach four weeks basically of technique and tool making and then um, have Matt Jenkins come in at the end and do two weeks of working with the students on designing their own work geared towards 
creating products that you might sell at like uh, I don't want to say maybe it's a craft show but maybe it's a web store maybe it's whatever but it's like I feel like it's going to be this really wonderful four weeks of like we talked about like forging to spec right understanding tools anvils top tools power hammers and then to be able to have that release with Matt to start to design your own work after being put through four weeks of technique is going to be freaking awesome. And you got, you just have a, a murderous row of you wanna, teachers. You want to talk about those guys, don't you? I just want to let people know it's a, the instructors that you have here are who's who of awesome Night pickers. I mean, the class is going on now. Yeah. You have Pete Brack, Brassnick's coming back. Yeah, Salem's coming. Back. Salem Straub's coming back. Nick yeah. Rossi's gonna have his first class here. Yeah, yeah. That's gonna be huge yeah. meeting of real two big co- confluence right there. I mean, and then what you have going on for next year is like crazy. I mean, it's t- totally crazy, and you know, I'm not supposed to say anything, so I won't say anything. <laughs> with that it's, it's all right. well I just want to make sure everybody's confirmed you know what I mean yeah of course of course of course but so basically this is the place to come Center for Mental Arts is the place to come you should make a pilgrimage the people who are coming down here making the pilgrimage you should make the pilgrimage too go follow Center for Mental Arts on Instagram go be part of their newsletter you guys have a newsletter yeah yeah, yeah. get on the newsletter yeah. Yeah. keep your eyes open Keep your eyes open, and I can tell you this. The dormitories here, the rectory is awesome. It's a great vibe. You can walk from the dormitory straight to the, off to, to, to the shop. The place, the people are so nice. Pat does such a great job well, being hospitable and welcoming. Heidi's great. Everybody has been nothing but warm and welcoming, and it's been a great vibe. We're actually going to go back to the rectory where you might do some tequila shots, apparently. That's what I've been told. I don't know if I'm going to do tequila shots. I'm going to finish this goddamn class tomorrow. Pat Quinn, hand-forged in VT. It is always my pleasure to be down here. It's my honor to be down here. I love coming down here. I love seeing you. I love watching you grow. As I've said, every time I'm here, in every six months, you've like conquered big mountains. Big mountains. And I'm looking forward to the more mountains that you climb and, and to get up to. And it's impressive. And thank you very much for allowing me to be here. Thank you so much for coming, dude. It's, it's always, always a pleasure having you here. And, uh, you know, anytime, of course, preparation is everything. I'm always impressed with how prepared you are. Thank you. Yeah. I have a mental disorder. All right, guys. <laughs> We're going to see you next week with my friend Ben Paik. We'll be designs back. Woby Design is back. All right, guys. Pat, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right, cheers. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. (laughs) 